Hello and welcome back. Part 5 of our trip through culture and the mind of Christ. And we're going to be looking this week at a kind of subset of modernism called humanism. Now I said last week that it's not really parties or movements which change the course of history. It's individuals. They may go on to set up parties and movements, but the initial impetus always comes from individual people. And over the next two weeks, we're going to be looking at three particular individuals whose work planted seeds which have all grown and become very fruitful even if that fruit is exceedingly bitter. This week we're going to look at two great thinkers. You'll have heard of one of them, probably not the other. And then next week another who, uh, again, you probably will have heard of, uh, particularly if you are a Monty Python fan. Both of today's characters started off as theological students. So the first lesson there is beware of theological students. They can be very dangerous people indeed. The one you've probably not heard of is Ludwig Feuerbach and he was born in Germany in 1804. He came from a family of academics, uh, although more in terms of sciences, mathematics uh, and so on. And he went to university to study theology, heading towards ordination and a career in the church. But his studies soon made him disillusioned and he switched courses from theology to philosophy and studied under uh, a famous philosopher, again you probably have heard of, called Georg Hegel. Feuerbach's most famous book, which he wrote in 1841, is called The Essence of Christianity. And the argument of that book goes something like this. Like Liam Neeson off of Taken, the Christian God has a very particular set of skills acquired over a very long career. The Christian God is wise, he's loving, he's moral, he's creative, uh, and so on. But, says Feuerbach, so does the human race. In fact, if you take the human race as a whole... Everything that God is meant to be, we are. In other words, everything we need from a God, we're capable of being and doing that. Not individually, but as the human race taken together. Now, once you start going down that route of thinking, you have to ask the question eventually, so do we need a God at all? If everything that God is and does, we are capable of doing as, as the human race collectively, why do we need a God? 
No, says Feuerbach, we are all we need. And so to come back to our diagram which we've been using as we've gone through this series, a circle representing life, the universe and everything, there's not a God in the centre at all, but there is the human race, the human race collectively. Now what we've done, says Feuerbach, is that we have projected the attributes of the human race onto a mythical God figure. We've created God in our image, but there's no need to do that. We are capable of all that God is supposed to be and to do. Then Feuerbach moves on to take some key Christian doctrines, the essence of Christianity, the, the title of his book, and then sought to explain how they apply to, not to God, but to the human race as a whole. So the doctrine of creation, the idea that God created all this world, no, the human race, through its growing skills in science and technology, has subdued nature. We've learnt how to grow good crops. We've learnt how to do um, all sorts of things with nature. But we project onto a creator God from our skill and our wisdom. You don't need to do that. The Christian doctrine of the Trinity. The human race works better together. And so we have projected onto a God who is in relationship, who is in Trinity. And the doctrine of the incarnation, Feuerbach says, we've got that the wrong way round entirely. It's not that God became human humans have become God. It's the human race at the centre of that circle and it's the human race that deserves worship and reverence, not some God that we've just made up. Now if you want an anthem for Feuerbach's thinking, you may remember the 1991 Michael Jackson song, Heal the World, a hymn to what we can achieve as a human race. And I've been in schools where this has been sung in school assembly as a hymn in the, quotes, broadly Christian act of worship, very broadly uh, in this case, um, and these words have been sung by the kids. If you really try, you'll find there's no need to cry. In this place, you'll feel there's no hurt or sorrow. There are ways to get there if you care enough for the living. Make a little space. Make a better place. Heal the world. Make it a better place for you and for me and the entire human race. There are people dying. If you care enough for the living, make a better place for you and for me. 
heal the world, not as a prayer to an almighty God, but as an appeal to the best of human nature, if we care enough. And I don't know, um, slightly more up-to-date, whether you've heard this um, Queen's Platinum Jubilee Beacon Lighting song. Um, It's the same thing. It's a contentless dirge, in my humble opinion, which expresses a vague aspiration towards a better world. A life lived with grace, a heart filled with love, unclear whether that is about Her Majesty or about all of us, peace on earth and harmony in the heavens above. What on earth is all that about? It's it's pure Feuerbach. Now the second great thinker, I hope, hope that you've grasped what uh, Feuerbach is saying, the second great thinker who you probably have heard of, another theological student born in 1844 in Saxony to Uh, a long family of Lutheran priests. And Friedrich Nietzsche grew up with a profound hatred of Christianity. And so, although perhaps due to family pressure, he began training for the priesthood, he too switched at university to classics. Now, there are two things you need to know about Nietzsche. What there is one good thing about him and one bad thing about him. The good thing about him is his moustache. And it is truly stunning and if there is one character in history whom I aspire to in the moustache department, without question it's Friedrich Nietzsche. That's the good thing about him. The bad thing about him is that he is arguably responsible for more death and suffering than any other individual in history. I think you could uh, argue that. Now, you may or may not feel that the moustache cancels that out. I'll leave that up to you. So Nietzsche became a very talented writer, a poet, and uh, quite a meteoric rise to fame. By the time he was aged 24, he was professor of classics at Basel University. And his big thing, and if you know one thing about Nietzsche, it's probably this, God is dead. He used to exist, but he's been killed by science. So like Feuerbach, Nietzsche removed God from the centre of that circle. He's dead, he has no further place or influence or anything. But unlike Feuerbach, he didn't replace him with the human race. Oh no. Nietzsche says this, just look at the human race. Do you re- Just look around you. Do you really think that that lot are capable of being God? Just look around you. Some of this 
great human race are crippled or disabled. Some are mentally unstable. Some are weak and sickly. Some are Jewish. Some are homosexual. Some voted leave. And, and, and of course, for uh, equality's sake, some voted remain. But basically, says Nietzsche, you only have to look around you to see that the human race are basically a bunch of ignorant scum. In fact, only a few people are capable of taking on the role of God, and they are those with what he called the will to power, those with enough drive to make them clever and strong enough to rise above the scum of the earth and become capable of leading and ruling. And such men, and they were men, Nietzsche called supermen. The centre of the circle is not God, is not the human race as a whole, they're certainly not up to the job, but it's the superman, that special breed of people with what it takes to have power. Now, the big problem, of course, with Christianity is that it exists precisely for the scum of the earth. Jesus, Christianity's founder, spent his time with the poor, the sick, the blind, the lame. The Christian church is still far more interested in the weak and the poor than it is in the rich and the powerful. And the Christian church down the centuries has a track record of giving all its attention to the weak of the earth. And Nietzsche says these people don't deserve a place on the earth, let alone being cared for. They need wiping out, not loving by Christians. Nietzsche's most famous book, written in 1883, is called Thus Spoke Zarathustra, nothing to do with the uh, music by Strauss. It is a beautifully written book. It is fantastic to read, and the beauty of the writing and the language disguises the... Um, insidious, well not that insidious, very clear evil of its message. Zarathustra, taking his name from an old Persian prophet, goes up into the mountains to seek enlightenment as you do and that's where he has all his insights as to what's going on and so he comes down from the mountain in order to spread his new message. And he's walking through the forest and he meets an old hermit who is praising God. And they have a little chat and part amicably. But, quote, when Zarathustra was alone, he spoke thus to his heart. Could it be possible? This old saint 
has not yet heard in his forest that God is dead? When Zarathustra arrived at the nearest of the towns lying against the forest, he found in that very place many people assembled in the market square. He spoke thus to the people, I teach you the superman. Man is something that should be overcome. What have you done to overcome him? All creatures hitherto have created something beyond themselves. And do you want to be the ebb of this great tide and return to the animals rather than overcome man? What is the ape to men? A laughing stock or a painful embarrassment? And just so shall man be to the superman, a laughing stock or a painful embarrassment. You have made your way from worm to man, and much in you is still worm. Once you were apes, and even now man is more of an ape than any ape. But he who is the wisest among you, he also is only a discord and hybrid of plant and of ghost. But do I bid you become ghosts or plants? Behold, I teach you the superman. The superman is the meaning of the earth. Let your will say, the superman shall be the meaning of the earth. Now, unlike other philosophers, Nietzsche actually lived out his philosophy to the bitter end. In 1888 he had a severe mental breakdown and was put into care in an asylum. He was suffering from megalomania. He believed he was the Antichrist predicted in the Bible and never recovering from his madness he died in 1900, along with God. Now, Feuerbach and Nietzsche would remain historical curiosities by themselves, but the seeds that they planted were nurtured by others, and something horrific grew. Feuerbach's thinking that the individual is nowhere as important as the race as a whole, was taken up by Karl Marx, and the subjection of the individual to the state, the corporate, was one of the key doctrines of Marxism and on into communism, and all the suffering that that regime has brought and still brings to the earth. And of course, you don't need me to tell you who picked up on Nietzsche's thinking. Adolf Hitler's attempts to breed the Aryan master race of supermen and to exterminate those who were different, who were perceived as weaker, grew Nazism out of the seeds planted by Nietzsche. Six million Jews 
exterminated along with many other people. It's paradoxical, I find, that uh, some of the followers of Nazism today can look a bit like the animals that the Superman was supposed to replace. It does appear that humans, whether all of us or a select bunch of supermen, simply not up to the job which God has been doing. We're not up, we've not got what it takes. So what has the Bible got to say about these two characters? I think there are two passages in particular which uh, kind of speak into these two philosophers. The first one is the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11, the arrogance of the human race. Interestingly, it's come through uh, progress in science and technology. They invented bricklaying. They learnt how to make bricks and uh, make mortar and therefore that technology allowed them to build a tower and a city. We can be as high up as God because our science and our technology has put us there. And God came down and confused their speech not as an act of judgment, but an act of mercy. God knew that if the human race together replaced him, untold evil would result. And in the New Testament, the what we call the Magnificat, Mary's song in Luke chapter 1, God is the one who chooses not the supermen, not the people with the will to power, not the people with that kind of influence, but he chooses the humble and meek, the poor and the broken, not just as the mother of his son, but as a general principle. And Paul echoes that in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Think about what you were when you were called. You were nobodies. And yet God has chosen us to change the earth. It's the poor who will be exalted and the proud who will be cast down. And Jesus humbled himself and went to victory, not through the will to power, but by the way of humiliation and the torture of the cross. That's what God thinks of the power of the human race or the arrogance of supermen. So what do we do about all this? Like deism, in some senses that thinking has died out. You may have seen the uh, famous piece of graffiti, God is dead, Nietzsche. Nietzsche is dead, God. But like deism, it still lingers on. If you're old enough to remember the 60s, all joining hands and singing, we shall overcome. That's Feuerbach. We're not there now. We're, we're a lot more cynical than we were in the 60s. But that daft jubilee song reminds us that sentimental ideas about peace on earth and harmony in the heavens retain their appeal 
without us realising that we're not going to get that peace and harmony unless God, not the human race, heals the world. I think it's interesting that Her Majesty doesn't get a mention in that song, uh, which is probably good for her humility. But as a Christian, she knows how much we need God, not human effort. So the message uh, as throughout this series is just think, think about what our culture is feeding us. Don't swallow it whole. Pray for the mind of Christ to challenge us to think beyond the shallow sentiment of a culture which masks arrogant godlessness. And join with others in crying out to God for mercy on the human race and not by trying a little bit harder. And next week we're going to move on and think of a further development as we look at the work of Jean-Paul Sartre. Talk to you then.